Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. <laughs> I navigate my way around. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome, and thank you for coming. Uh, uh, my name is Will Hutton. Apart from anything else, I've known Richard for over 40 years. Um, I currently write a column for The Observer. I'm the principal of Hartford College uh, in Oxford. Um, but that's enough of me. Um, this is the man you've come to hear. Um, uh, Richard, uh, the first thing, I mean, I, well, I won't mention this again, but I, I do think uh, that he is a tribute to his own philosophy. Um, he is going to be nearer 90 than 80 um, <laughs> in six weeks' time. And uh, I know that when he serves to your backhand, uh, it's as lethal as it was uh, when I first started playing tennis with him 40 years ago. Extraordinary man. Um, uh, a kind of combination of, um, kind of geniality uh, and integrity shines through. Um, and when he gets his teeth into something, uh, he is unbelievably persistent. He was unbelievably persistent in the 80s and 90s about the need to reform Britain's labour labor markets, and actually to the extent they are well-functioning and uh, uh, amongst the best-functioning in the world is arguably down to this man. And then he took up a different baton um, in 2005, uh, publishing the first of his um, books on happiness. Um, that was followed up some years later by a kind of focus uh, on Thrive, on the psychological dimension of happiness. And now there's this um, uh, third volume. One thing I'm going to ask him, actually, just to pre-warn you, Richard, is why now and why a third book? <laughs> um, so um, he is, um, um, you should also know that he's a founder and um, co-director of um, the Centre of Economic Performance at LSE, which actually... Um, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to be slightly, slight hyperbole, but I think it's fair. The centre is, uh, I think, the, the best centre for practical, um, empirical, you know, evidence-based economic research in the country. Um, um, and member of the House of Lords, Richard, you should go to the um, lectern and go for it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, I suppose some of you are, are foregoing your lunch, um, which reminded me of a conversation I had with our young granddaughter once um, about her brother and how much she loved him. Uh, and then she said, in fact, if he died, I would cry even if I was eating lunch. <laughs> so the fact that lunch is so important and that you're foregoing it, touches me. Um, Will, you said, why now, this book? This book is about how we can be happier. Um, and that's a little different from the previous original book that I wrote, which was more about why we are happy. Because so much more evidence has accumulated in the last 15 years um, of what we can do. So there's evidence on what makes people happy, but there's even more important now, experimental evidence on things that have been evaluated to make people happier, and yes, uh, they do it. So that's what, what this is about, um, how we can be happier. And I think that there are really two main parts to that. 
Yeah, that works. Um, so the first step um, is that we have to have a different culture uh, from the prevailing culture, uh, and we have to have a different goal. And the second step is that we have to use all this rich evidence that we now have on how to achieve that goal. So let me start with the, the culture. I suppose if you, you asked what is the, the goal which we're offering young people at the moment, it's basically uh, personal success. Make the most of yourself. Do as well as you can compared with other people. Get better grades. Get a better income. And, of course, if your goal is a comparative one and you look at the effect of that at the level of society, it's zero-sum because if somebody wins, somebody has to lose. And that's not great for the losers. Um, but it's actually not great for the winners because the stress involved in this rat race uh, is such uh, that we've got from the Gallup World Poll quite good series now of stress. Do people feel their life is stressful? And in spite of the fact we're so much richer previous generations, uh, we are also more stressed, and that doesn't make sense. So what we need is not a zero-sum goal. We need a positive-sum goal where we're getting as much as we can of our happiness from not being better than other people but uh, contributing to their happiness. So that's the culture that I think we need. Uh, and that means that for, for each of us, uh, the, the goal has got to be uh, in our lives to create as much happiness as we can in the world. I think that's a, a wonderful goal for everybody, from the youngest to the oldest. Um, of course, it includes yourself, and to a degree you can't help other people uh, without ha having some stuffing inside yourself. Uh, but this should be, I think, the way we try and all of us uh, think about our purpose in life, uh, and it should be, uh, sorry, it should be the, the, the basic ethical system uh, for the 20th century. Now, of course, it's a secular ethical system. We're saying you should create people, uh, contribute to people's happiness because that's what matters, uh, not because uh, God says so. Um, and the Dalai Lama, who uh, I, I admire enormously and had the chance of talking to uh, a number of times, um, he has always stressed that we, in, a, in this age when so few people any longer ha have a religious belief, we have got to have a secular ethic which uh, speaks to everybody, including, of course, uh, religious people, but especially uh, it fills the, the hole, which uh, uh, is a very dangerous hole uh, created by the uh, retreat of religion. Into that hole, the natural thing, unless we put something positive, is selfish. Uh, uh, selfishness. So that's the idea, but most ideas uh, only take root if they have organisations that are carrying the idea. Uh, and that's why uh, some of us have thought it's very important to try and create new organisations uh, where people get together regularly using really good materials, but to remind themselves of what is really important in life and to be supported and inspired um, by doing that with other people on a regular basis, which is why we founded Action of Happiness. I hope somebody's going to ask me what that is. <laughs> OK. So, I've been talking in a very altruistic language so far. Um, 
But of course we have to take care of ourselves as well. We can't be much use without doing that. And I think we've got a great idea um, that has been established um, by modern psychology or reinvented, you might say, um, that the way to make ourselves feel better is to work on changing our thoughts um, they, because they're accessible, directly accessible to us. And what we have to do, essentially, is to... We all have negative thoughts constantly. Is to separate ourselves, find ways of separating ourselves from our negative thoughts um, and creating space for positive thoughts uh, and positive action. So that's what modern psychology, positive psychology, uh, is telling us. It's also, of course, what uh, was uh, said uh, centuries ago in the East, and so we are getting also the same message carried on the practice of mindfulness and other uh, Eastern practices, which can also be very, very helpful. But I, I want to talk mainly uh, about the care of others, uh, and of course that's partly in your personal life, um, but it's uh, very importantly in your work life. Uh, and in um, at least half of my book, um, I'm, I'm uh, talking about uh, what different professions can do on the basis of experimental evidence uh, to make people uh, they touch uh, happier. So, of course, we've got to know what are the most important things that affect people's happiness, uh, and they are, uh, in particular, uh, mental and physical health and human relationships, uh, family, work and community. Uh, income is also uh, important, but less than those. And how do I know this? Because we've done a lot of work on it in our centre. <laughs> um, we published a book called The Origins of Happiness. Uh, and here is the main diagram. Uh, so this is from Britain, um, but actually we've done it for a number of advanced countries. It comes out the same everywhere. Uh, the top factor explaining the spread of happiness that we find in the population uh, is whether or not this is a very simple question. Have you ever been diagnosed for anxiety or depression? Uh, next is quality of work, um, which uh, is also, of course, to do with, the, uh, with relationships. And next is your family life. Are you partnered? And physical health, uh, then income, uh, and, and so on. So let's look at, given, against that background, at what individual... Uh, professions can do. So <clears throat> we start with the early life, um, school teachers. Um, it turns out that the best predictor of whether somebody will have a happy life as an adult is whether they were happy when they were a school child. That's much more important than the grades they get. But if you ask what the teachers think they're trying to do, uh, they will all, all tell you that whether or not they want to. They have to uh, focus on getting them the grades. Uh, this is not a good scene. Uh, it's producing a lot of mental stress for young people. I'm sure many of you know it in your children and grandchildren. Um, we need to get the well-being uh, of the children established as a goal of equal importance, as it is in the Netherlands, for example, with their academic achievement. Uh, we need to encourage schools to measure how the school is doing with the well-being of its children, to teach life skills uh, weekly. Then people go to work. And here's the shocking fact, that the least happy time in the day 
is, guess when? When you're with your boss. I mean, this is deeply shocking. It shows something fundamentally wrong with the whole philosophy uh, that's being taught in business schools. Um, we've got to uh, have managers uh, chosen for their ability to inspire and not just to uh, dragoon. Um, and we've got to give workers more control over how their work is organised and there are good methods of doing that, um, which we could talk about. Um, then, of course, there's the community where people live. Um, incredibly important to have good services, but also because those good services create social connections, which are very important uh, to people's sense of belonging uh, uh, in their lives. So services for children, as you know, have been cut in our country. Services for youth have been cut. Services for old people have been cut. Uh, benefits have been cut. Uh, I find it absolutely extraordinary that we're saying, oh, we've got a bit more money now, what should we do? We should get it uh, uh, reduced by 10 minutes, the time it takes to get from uh, Houston to Birmingham. I mean, this is unbelievable when we've got these crying things. Just ask yourself, how much would a better uh, rail service from London to Birmingham, how much difference does that make to people's happiness? compared with all these things to do with what they worry about from day to day. Uh, we've just got our perspectives uh, quite wrong. Um, of course, uh, even if we got them better, we would still have some mental health problems. The work of therapists is very important, and it, it can go beyond depression and anxiety, uh, and it should be available, obviously for children, including behaviour uh, problems for children, which are not properly treated at the moment, um, but also for family conflict, domestic violence, drug and alcohol, these are all uh, psychological uh, problems. So we need a better society, but we need to help people personally uh, as well. Um, who can lead a charge? Well, I'm an economist, <laughs> and I do think that I actually came to economics later in life because it had this idea, basic idea that you've got to have a clear objective and then you've got to think of what you do on the basis of how do you maximise the objective using whatever resources you have. Um, so I think economists can lead the charge, but we need uh, that, 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 that in, in getting happiness established as the objective. Um, we need politicians to listen, and of course we need to have scientists who are thinking about um, future generations. Uh, being as important as the present generation. So can this uh, succeed? Um, I think it's going pretty well. I mean, we're not there. <laughs> we're in the very early days of this happiness revolution. Um, but there are a lot of people involved. There are a lot of individuals involved. But now there are an increasing number of politicians involved. Uh, I was, the day before yesterday, I was in Brussels, where the, the European Council of Ministers, that's the heads of government, have issued this extraordinary statement. I mean, we used to be maximising GDP in Europe. This is quite a change. Making it happen, of course, is, uh, is going to take some time, but there are those three countries <coughs> that have had wellbeing budgets. Uh, it is interesting they're all uh, led by women, um, and I think women are a very important part of this happiness revolution. Um, but um, men can do something. What about Boris? Uh, I, I, he, he could be the first Prime Minister uh, to uh, make well-being the goal uh, of his government. And he's meant to be rethinking these things. Why shouldn't he do that? 
So here's the final fact I want to tell you, that um, we've been studying, my co-author and me, um, but particularly him, the outcome of elections, European elections since 1970, uh, the last uh, presidential election <coughs> in the States. And guess what? It's not the economy, stupid, which determines the outcome of elections. Uh, it is very much more how satisfied people are with their lives for non-economic reasons. So uh, let every prime minister around the world um, read his wonderful article <laughs> and realise that it is in the interest of politicians uh, to make well-being objective and to spend the money more sensibly uh, in that way. So uh, I think we are at the beginning of a happiness revolution. Um, and I think that all of us can play a great part, and we'll get there. Thank you. Admirably, admirably clear slides, I thought, actually. Yeah. Um, Richard, um, first point, for, I mean, just as I was watching your slides go through, and I'm sure there's going to be points from the audience, and, and I'll, ask, I'll just have a few, a, a few questions, then we'll turn it over to you guys. Um, you know, you, 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 what, spreading happiness in Britain, you know. Um, first thing, um, mental health. Um, Second, the quality of work, as my recollection. Um, and thirdly, um, relationships. Mm. Um, what I thought about it was I thought it was kind of slightly passive. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very influenced when I, when I talk about um, happiness. Uh, and I, I challenge audiences, and I, I always kind of um, use this kind of Aristotelian kind of definition of actually acting and being, using the endowment that the gods gave you, or whether you think you've got your endowment of skills and energy, and you act on the world in some way to make it a bit better. And that is a kind of active way of making oneself happy, rather than slightly the kind of passive dimensions in which I saw up there. What's your reaction to that? Um, I, I think, actually, the most original chapter in this book is, is the first chapter, which makes the distinction between whether you are um, a, 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 someone who experiences or how much happiness you experience and how much happiness you create. And most of the research, such as I quoted up there, is, of course, on how much happiness people experience. But the really important thing is how much happiness you create. I totally agree with you, and that's what what Aristotle had in mind. Um, it's much more difficult to study that because um, you, you have to know what... Somebody, you've got, somehow you've got to identify how the, each individual is affecting other people. But um, I don't think there's, there's any conflict between what you say and what you say Aristotle said. He was talking about happiness created... That's very this, re this research is talking about happiness experience. Now, of course, a key point is that if you create happiness for other people, it, it helps to make you happier. But happiness created and happiness experience is not the same. If you, if you just think of people you know, you can think of people who are big creators of happiness, may not be 
the, experiencing the most happiness, and there are some people who are not creating much happiness, but they uh, uh, are, are picking up happiness uh, from other people. I mean, your book is, I mean, your book is, I mean, apart from being characteristically clear, um, lots of graphs in which you, you know, um, are doing inter-country comparisons of happiness or associating happiness with this variable and that variable. But actually, when you, uh, you know, ask the question, I mean, you want to um, say, do you self-identify as happy? And, and then the numbers in a population self-identify as happy, and then, and then you then go on to correlate it with whatever variable it sure. is. But, I mean... <laughs> I mean, the happiness of Eskimos um, and the happiness of, uh, kind of jihadists and the happiness of, uh, kind of uh, heads of Oxford colleges are kind of slightly different places. I mean, how can, we, how can you begin to say that we're on the same kind of wavelength? Well, I think there are two, there are two issues. Um, I mean, one is that different people get happiness from different things. So this, this graph is, is a, a, an average of that across all people. Um, but the other issue is, you know, can you compare uh, the happiness of an Eskimo with uh, uh, a city, <laughs> city slicker? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Well, can you? What, what is so interesting, we produce something called the World Happiness Report every year. Yeah. March the 20th, World Happiness Day. Um, and my colleague, John Helliwell, has tried to explain the inter-country differences. Uh, and he's, he can explain 80% of the differences in happiness, average happiness across countries, by six factors only. I and mean, that's amazing. It means that there is yeah. real information in the answers that people give in different countries, even though they're giving them in different languages. What are those six factors? I'm okay. sure we're all keen to hear. OK. Uh, do, do you have uh, someone that you can rely on to help you in time of trouble? Uh -huh. uh, Bridge over troubled waters. Yeah, yes. Uh, do you feel free to uh, do the things you want to in your life? Um, uh, autonomy. Yeah. Uh, is is uh, there serious corruption uh, in business or in government? Uh, and do you... Uh, give money at least once a month to um, good causes. Uh, and then uh, what is like healthy life expectancy in your country and uh, GDP per head. Those six factors. And, and, GDP per and, head. And, and, and GDP right. is not, it doesn't explain, there's not more than half of that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Are explaining these, these, this, this remarkable range of differences. Uh, as you know, at the top always come the Scandinavian countries yeah. because they're so high in, 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 in interpersonal support. Well, I was caught when I was uh, reading your book um, by uh, one series of graphs you have in which you say uh, it's the condition of government, the lived experience of government that makes you happier than living in a democracy. Mm -hmm. I was oh. quite struck by that. So... I mean, uh, if you're um, living in China, um, there's no democracy, but you could be happier than living in a kind of turbulent democracy like ours. Well, there, there are two... Um, in, in the studies, there are two types of um, indices of political uh, uh, arrangements in the country. One is d democracy, you know, 
can you, can you change the government? The other is how well does the government perform? Um, do, does it deliver services in an effective way? Do you have the rule of law? Things which could or could not exist uh, in different degrees, uh, imperfectly correlated with the degree of democracy. And it's this quality of government always comes out as more important than the simple fact of democracy or otherwise. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I, people here, you know, we're all, we're all gathered, you know, you are the happiness guru. And actually, you know, you stand kind of benignly, right, like Mr. Magoo. Um, uh, uh, I wonder whether people realise how kind of radical it really I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, again, as I read, read it, I thought, my God, Richard, I mean... <laughs> You want to change education system. You want to change local government. You want to change the workplace. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it puts John McDonnell and, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn to the shade. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what, uh, what kind of reaction do you get? Uh, do people, do people under, understand the kind of comprehensive call for change that um, you and your happiness colleagues are militating for? Uh, I think people, they sort of know, but um, they're not really willing to get to grips with it. Um, and I think the reason is that people have a very peculiar idea of what, what things governments can do. I mean, as you know, before 1870, government didn't do anything about education. Even. Yeah. Well, didn't do, Britain, didn't do anything. Well, it was happening in other countries, yeah, yeah. I'm saying, but, but yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. country. So people... It's a fact that people's idea of what government can and can't do changes enormously over time. So we, we now assume that the government can do all sorts of things for the economy. Actually, that's a rather exaggerated yeah. uh, uh, of, of what they can do for the economy. They assume that anything to do with how you actually feel about life, what you worry about from day to day, is a private matter. It's outside what government deals with. Why on earth would we assume that if the government had methods of helping you with the things you worry about from day to day, and we know, we know what they are. I mean, they're not mainly the economic things. They're mainly health and relationship things. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if people recognise that the government can do things about this, why on earth wouldn't those move up the list top of, to, to the top of priorities? Well, I mean, you pointed in your presentation to the uh, European Council yesterday saying that policy design should reflect kind of well-being uh, rather than happiness. And I, I, uh, I know that you uh, have a bone to pick with well-being <laughs> advocates rather than happiness advocates. What, but, I mean, it's, uh, I'd like you to kind of, kind of, uh, talk a bit about that. But, I mean, having come up with that clarion call, what would you expect to follow through from it? So two points. One, well-being versus happiness. And two... OK, they've made that statement. What happens now? Well, um, well-being is a weasel word, which, of course, which is used um, <laughs> to get more people on board. Um, and then people say, oh, but there's, there's, there's two different <laughs> meanings to it. You, you can have subjective well-being, which is how you feel, which is happiness. But also you can have objective well-being. Now, what is that? Well, that's what clever civil servants... Uh, or politicians think is good for people. Uh, and you have a list 
uh, and the ONS produced a list. Yeah. And we got them to measure subjective well-being, but they, in their uh, 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 sort of report on well-being, included that of one of ten factors. So there's also housing and there's transport and there's, there's all the other things which are part of well-being, aren't they? Surely they're part. But no, they're not part of well, real well-being. Real well-being, something affected by, that, by those things. But there is a simple, single uh, thing, which is how good or bad you feel uh, about your life. Um, and uh, we have to get that into people's heads as a central thing. You know, uh, if you're trying to choose priorities, there is no logical way of, of choosing between priorities except in terms of how they affect one single common objective. I mean, there's no other way of thinking about priorities. I mean, how, how could you put something... word priorities means something first before something else. How could you put one thing before another except by assessing each of them against something else? So there has to be a single overarching objective for any logical, coherent government policy. So that's, that's, that's what we have to get across to people. But they, they, they are using the well-being phrase, many of them, uh, just as a, a sort of banner for the thing which they particularly want. So the Council of Europe was a slightly weaselly worded mm -hmm. kind of thing, but you were still kind of uh, a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, uh, now, I talked a bit about the, the reforms that uh, you were the author of in the 90s and the 2000s, um, but you're the author of another kind of revolution in Britain, or one of the major kind of advocates of it, um, and it's come from your work on happiness, and it's in your book, and you write about it, you devote some chapters to it, and that is the cognitive behavioural therapy as a solution to mental health difficulties. And you say that, and you said it this, this afternoon, that mental health is numero uno um, in the issue. By the way, let's just, is, just to have a show of hands in the audience, uh, has anyone in the audience either suffering mental health difficulties or know someone in their circle of friends or family who have got mental health difficulties. Could we just have a hand? That includes me, by the way. Uh, and is there anyone who hasn't? Well, congratulations, you three. Um, uh, well, that speaks to... That does speak to the... I mean, I, and I do think you have really... I mean, no one single-handedly... Um, kind of achieves change. But I do think you have been a major contributor to the, to the discourse. Um, uh, you know, congratulations on that. Um, how effective really, though, is CBT? Well, I want to say first, I am not a specialist in mental health. <laughs> um, so what horrified me when I started looking at it was that NICE... Uh, from about the year 2000, were recommending treatments not only for each physical condition, but also for each specific mental health condition. And what was happening? The recommendations for the physical treatments were being carried out, and the recommendations for the mental health ones were just completely ignored. I mean, simply nothing happened. It's just completely remarkable. <laughs> so all I have done... Uh, uh, in, in British context, is to press for the nice recommendations for the treatment of the different mental health conditions to be implemented. So what are those? Uh, 
for anxiety conditions, uh, CBT is recommended for all anxiety conditions. Um, you teach uh, your mind to, to kind of behave itself. No, no. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very... Um, I mean, David Clark, who I work with, uh, is very keen to say that CBT means cognitive behavioural therapies, plural. Oh, OK, yeah. Uh, very, very, very different for PTSD, for obsessive-compulsive disorder, for phobias. Very, very specific. Um, but, but based on this one, uh, one idea, if you like, that or two ideas, perhaps, um, that the, the cognitive bit means that if you look at your thoughts, uh, that will be a very important way of changing your mental state. The other is the behavioural bit. By doing things um, that your therapist works out with you, that's another way of changing so, your, 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 your mental state. What does it actually but, mean to look at one's thoughts? I mean, let's have a look at your thoughts. OK. <laughs> let's, let's have a look at your thoughts. <laughs> well, I want you to tell us what it means to look at Richard Laird's thoughts. But you have, you have a negative thought. How, how frequently? How frequently do people here have negative thoughts? At least once. Yeah, negative how, thought. How OK. Who has negative thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Who's had a negative thought in the last 35 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> I know some negative... Half a dozen people have negative thoughts, Richard, in this room. Now, help them. Yeah, yeah, OK. But, but by noticing them and, and, and getting a, 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 a mental habit of laying them on the side, you observe them, but you, you don't let them own you. Putting them on the side, you create room for positive thoughts and actions. Doesn't, don't, 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 don't most people here have some form of mental um, procedure that they, they follow? I think, and people have always tried to find mental disciplines throughout the centuries, but this seems to be one that has a very much greater success rate. Simply, you, 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 of course, the, the way we've made progress with modern psychological therapy is by measuring people's states. And, uh, you know, they, they answer a questionnaire. And in the, what we, we've got uh, established in the NHS, uh, they, they, they fill in a questionnaire before every session. So you, if they disappear, you know whether they were improving or not. You, you, we have the ability, therefore, to tell whether something is working or not. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's crucial because, you know, a lot of therapists uh, and counsellors uh, in the past, you feel you're doing good, but uh, you don't really know. Uh, and you persuade yourself that you, you're doing a pretty good job um, because you can remember A and B and C who really were improved, but what about the ones who didn't? With, with modern psychological therapy, you rigorously measure everybody and you see what difference it makes, and that's why... Many treatments have been rejected, uh, which, which have been previously practised, in favour of those which pass the test. And it's not only CBT, it's interpersonal therapy for depression, it's, it's couples therapy for depression, uh, it's even psycho, brief psychodynamic therapy uh, for depression. So it, it's, it's, it's not a CBT... Obsession. Okay. okay. <laughs> a couple more points, and then we should throw it open to um, the audience to ask you some questions. Um, 
Of course, there's one hanging chad, and you, because uh, we, we, well, there's two areas actually to go, and I, I will go there briefly, and then in a minute or two, we'll turn it over to the audience. I mean, um, you talked about the, um, we talked about psychological health, uh, but you, yeah, a great part of this book is actually consecrated to um, what professionals and what people can do in various walks of life. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm um, uh, talking the language of priorities. Uh, you know, you, you talk about the manager, you talk about the health worker, you talk about uh, the teacher. Um, where would you put your money, where would you put your effort in prioritising making us happy? Well, um, I'm a member of an all-party parliamentary group on well-being, uh, and we produced a budget. Um, uh, uh, we're going to resubmit it for the next budget, but since there really wasn't a proper spending review last year. So it had four, it had four priorities. First was mental health treatment. Uh -huh. Second was um, promotion of well-being in schools. Uh -huh. uh, third was um, transition of youth into society so that they feel wanted um, through proper apprenticeship systems and so on, which I've always been very keen on. And then the fourth thing you have to say is proper support for old people, both, both physical and social. Now, the third of those, I'm, I'm, I, I know, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm knocking around this debate for a long time. It's the first time I've ever heard the case for good apprenticeships put in that way. Not as kind of instrumentally, you know, we need to skill people, you know, we need to raise productivity, uh, we must lower immigration by skilling up our own people so we don't have to go abroad for skills. You've made... Um, arguably the best argument, which is let's make 16 and 18-year-olds welcome. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's crucial, of course, and that'll be good for them. Um, it'll also be good for the rest of society, for example, to feel safer on the streets. So um, unless people feel welcome in society, uh, other members of society are going to pay the price. See, in a way, I think that's um, arguably um, the most illuminating insight into the way you think. You know, you, you don't think instrumentally. You think in terms of uh, the welcome that can be made altruistically to young people coming into society. I like it very much. Mm. Um, action for happiness. Uh, these three governments that have adopted it, all led by women. Um, the World Happiness Report. Um, I mean, these weren't happening 10 years ago. I mean, is this a, is this a movement that's... Um, I mean, you want to present it, obviously, as a car, you know, the, the snowball is moving down the mountain, it's going to turn into an avalanche. Climb aboard it quickly, uh, <laughs> or you'll be crushed by it. Um, but is it really happening? Action for happiness? I mean, there's a lot of well-minded, well-intentioned well, people running around, but, I mean, how much leverage has it got? Well, I think one, one, one obvious thing which is happening... Um, is that millions of people are taking courses on how to be happier. Um, this is a self-help movement, um, which I think is a, a great thing, but um, I do think that it tends to be somewhat, <coughs> in most of its versions, self-absorbed, and that's not the ultimate route, either to happiness for yourself or for happiness to the other people you deal with. Um, but also, it's, 
it's, it's normally, normally a one-on-one -on -one business. An awful lot of it is online. Um, and if you want to sign up to learn how to be happy, what's the process? You, you go to happiness, uh, actionforhappiness.org. Actionforhappiness.org. Yeah, and, and there you will find not only a lot of excellent stuff online, better, hopefully, than other stuff online, but that's not the main point of Action for Happiness. The main point of Action for Happiness is getting people together in groups that meet regularly uh, around the issues that really matter most uh, to them. These the, are like the, Quaker, the, the, they're kind of quasi-Quaker groups of... Uh, yes, domain. except people speak. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... so <laughs> Uh, oh, good. The, there, uh, are, there are, there are really rather inspiring materials provided on a monthly cycle. Give us, with a, one, give us a favour of what's, a, the, daily, what's, the most, what's the most inspiring piece? Come on, what's the piece that, when we go on, I mean, we've got to go to it, that's going to inspire us. No, I'll, I'll I want to tell you how, how the most important thing okay. that this movement is doing is getting people together in these groups. It starts, uh, every group starts with an eight-session course, and that has been evaluated... And if somebody could put my slides back up. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Um, I, I was amazed at this. I mean, I didn't design the course except the idea of having one. But um, it, it's um, a 100-page booklet, and, and you work through it um, in eight sessions with other people. Uh, and uh, then people are asked questions at the beginning, and two months later, as compared with a control group. And that is the effect of having uh, taken that course. And you can see that it's a bigger effect than we get when somebody finds a partner or finds a job from being unemployed. Uh, and we don't know how long it lasts uh, yet. <laughs> we, we, we but, I mean, this, it is remarkable that I think sort of um, seekers... Uh, we, we found a way of providing people who are seeking, of, of course, for happiness in their own lives, but they're, they're finding, they, they're getting it um, mainly through how, as a result of the course, they can find ways of creating happiness for other people. So, I mean, there's this woman, Jasmine, for example. She, she, she's on the stage. The, the Dalai Lama launched this course. Um, but uh, she came onto the stage with him. And... She was a woman who had hardly been out of the house for 10 years, chronic pain, one of these chronic pain conditions. Um, and somehow or other, she happened to see this advert. She went, and she's now devoting her life because she changed her attitude to her own pain. Her pain hasn't totally gone. I mean, your pain doesn't necessarily go, but you can change your attitude to your pain. That's part of what we were talking about before. Because of that experience, she is now uh, working um, with other sufferers from pain, um, to spread the message that you can actually become happier, even if you've got the pain. Brilliant. OK, let's have a few questions. Um, now, we've got two mics. Uh, can you flag this? Uh, and let's take a lady in the front. So, um, and speak directly into the mic, as close as you can to your mouth, because you... Um, Thank you. I appreciated your talk, especially when you mentioned that one needs evidence to support a goal, which is quite active. And then you said that you suggested that we need outside support and to use it tangibly. 
But to me, happiness is just a word. Actually, it, it has got a, lo a lot of uh, passive ex expectations in it. What do you think of words like maybe flow, gratitude, appreciation? Mm -hmm. If we don't have this, then we'll go to a childish entitlement. Okay. No, no. I, go ahead. I think do them one by one. Yeah, yeah, I know we'll do one by one, yeah. No, very good, very good question. Um, I think of all those things that you mentioned at the end as inputs to ha happiness. Uh, and in fact, um, the um, Action Happiness Movement has 10 keys to greater happiness, of which all, all, all the ones you just mentioned are in the keys. My wife and I uh, found a, an acronym <laughs> for, for the 10 keys, which is Great Dream, and they, they include um, all, the, all the things you said. OK, other contributions? Uh, gentlemen there, and then, and then okay, okay, I'll come to you on this side next, OK? You're very enthusiastic, so I'll come to you. So, Richard, I want to ask you about the three governments' initiatives that you mentioned, the one in uh, Iceland and New Zealand and, I think, Finland. Mm -hmm. Is there evidence that these initiatives are actually having an impact rather than just being a form of words, maybe a feel-good? Uh, as a result of that, are things actually changing in these countries to have uh, deeper happiness, for example? No, it's quite interesting, actually, what they did. Uh, this is only, only last year that this started. And what they did was actually exactly the same as we did in this all-party parliamentary group. You thought of, suppose you had a smallish sum of money extra, what would be the top priorities to spend it on? So that's what all these three countries um, have done. And the, the, the programme we proposed wouldn't, would cost £10 billion and uh, it would just make such a difference. There are some things that make, well, that make, for, that, make that much budget, more difference to when things you say, that really matter to people than others. Sorry, Richard, when you say £10 billion, is that the budget, the APPG, on well It's the extra spending that are four things okay. Uh, yeah, okay. can't cost. There's a lady here who's very enthusiastic, and there's a gentleman <laughs> back. We'll just come to you first. Yeah. yeah, I am enthusiastic because tomorrow is going to be a crucial day when Britain leaves the EU. Oh, uh, some happy. people are going to be celebrating, others will be plunged in deep gloom. Do you have any thoughts on those who are feeling very gloomy? <laughs> so I, and then there's a chap in the back. Quite, well, I didn't quite hear it. Ah, tomorrow we leave the European Union. True. Have you thoughts for those who are full of gloom, uh, <laughs> or alternatively over jubilant? What, what are your thoughts? And then there's a chap at the back. Well, my, my thoughts are, as when all bad things happen, <laughs> it, once they've happened, you have to accept them and get on with something else. You don't want to fight for... Um, Re-entry. Ultimately, or closer alignment, not, or not for whatever. The time, not for the time being. We have to fight for a better version of, of it, of course. Um, but I think for, for I mean, people who are directly... You know, specifically affected, particularly industries and so on. I mean, they've they've got to fight like hell, obviously. Um, but but, but, but yes. those of us who are not directly uh, affected by it, except insofar as our whole country is, um, I think we should get on with some of the things I've been talking about. Except that there is a point here, which is a, a kind of relates to happiness. And, I mean, those who uh, are analysing why it happened. Those who argued for it, I mean, Dominic Cummings, Matthew Elliott, all these people, wanted it very much. They really wanted it because um, it would 
faith or make them happy and make the country happy. Um, but their desire kind of overwhelmed um, the, the desires on the other side. There's a kind of balance sheet of kind of want here and hunger and hunger for change that <laughs> fell out one way. And there's a lot of people like this lady who made the question unhappy. Does one just shrug one's shoulders and move on after that? Well, I, I actually think that um, going back to one of this gentleman's question, um, because in a funny way, you know, when something is when the system is shaken up uh, in a bad way, it can also create an opportunity to shake it up in a good way because it was kind of an, a, a, a greater openness of mind. Let's hope. It may be, may be quite wrong. and They may just be devils incarnate. But let's wait and see what, what, what chance there is of getting them to take the well-being agenda. The gentleman here. Richard, yeah. thanks. thank you very much for your talk and your campaign. So can you wave your hand? All right. He's in the back and corner there. All right. I haven't read your book yet, but it seems to me that much of what you've talked about is implicitly about the search for meaning in people's lives. And I wonder whether that dimension needs to be talked about more explicitly. Should you talk more explicitly about the search for meaning? because really that lies foundationally at your argument, which you're not openly acknowledging. Well, um, I, I'm saying that um, you get your sense of meaning by your, uh, uh, um, your activity to create happiness in the world. That's where you get your sense of meaning from. Um, uh, uh, or you should do. Um, so that's that's essentially my answer to, <laughs> you know, what 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 meaning, what's the best meaning that you can get in your life is to uh, create as much happiness as you can. And I don't rule out playing the piano to yourself um, at all. But your, your sense of meaning comes from your, the contribution mainly that you make to the life of the community. Okay, come on. There's a gentleman here. Oh, there's a lady. Sorry, you're just here in the middle. Sorry. I'm really Hold on. There's a microphone coming. There's a, there's, a, there's a mic coming. I'm interested in exploring what you said about apprenticeships for Sorry, 16 to 18 year olds. She's at the, she's at the, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah? Okay. Apprenticeships for you. young young adolescents. Um, with the apprenticeship levy, which has created more apprenticeships for 16 to 18 year olds. Is the government doing anything to measure how this is helping them? Is um, you want to welcome sixteen-year-olds into the workforce? Yeah. There is an apprenticeship levy, um, which is trying to finance better apprenticeships. What's being done to uh, measure whether um, it's working, um, and in particular, working in the way that you would hope? Yeah. Um, it's, in a, it's a complete mess, of course. Um, uh, I mean, it, 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 it's unbelievable how we, we change, throw the whole system up in the air every two or three years, <laughs> and then we have to try and, try and put it together again. I mean, how young people are meant to see a way forward uh, if they're not going to university? 
is beyond one at the moment. Um, and uh, I've been arguing, and I think Will has been also doing, we must have a, a system where the progression for somebody who doesn't want to go to university um, is exactly like or similar to what it is if you do want to go to university, you, you achieve one level and that qualifies you for going on to the next level. Um, and we just haven't got, we've not got a system at all. I think the only way to, to deal with this is basically um, to think that we clearly, we've got to get to something similar to the German system. Uh, and uh, that means that there has, in, the, in the end, there has to be some sort of unified system of finance and uh, a, a mechanism whereby um, a young person who, who uh, qualifies at one level can automatically go on. What is that mechanism? It is that they carry the money with them, exactly like an academic, a student does on the academic route, until you have a budget which, which, which is uncapped and automatically enables a student who qualifies and gets a place at the next higher level, carries the money with them. We will never deal with this incredible injustice. I mean, this is one of the most flagrant injustices. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a total injustice. It's a total injustice. I always say there's 900,000 kids born every year. Half of them um, get, uh, maybe 60% of them get GCSEs, and a third of them will go and do university, maybe 40%. What happens to the rest? It's an incredible kind of an incredible system we have. Anyway, um, two more questions, then we'll wrap it up. Um, now, let me choose. I've got to, who's got? Uh, put your hands up really urgently. Okay, the chap here, um, and there's one at the back there. And anyway, so I should, yeah. What part do you think a job guarantee could play in welcoming people into society? Well, no, I've always believed in it. You said job guarantee. A job guarantee, yeah. yeah. I've always believed in that. Uh, in fact, um, my wife and I, she did, that, she did all of it, um, campaigned for a job guarantee in, right back in the, in the 80s, and Will was involved also in this, yeah. um, yes. through the uh, <laughs> various, various organisations. Um, and it, it's... Um, it's sometimes we've, we've come near to having such a thing. And I, and I think it's absolutely essential. And, of course, you can only deliver a job guarantee with some, a community work backup. Um, uh, and that's where the happiness research is very important. <coughs> because uh, we've always argued that if, if, if you can't find uh, work, quote, normal work, you should be offered... Uh, community work um, in return for your your pay and you should be paid at the rate for the job um, but you couldn't continue receiving benefits if you're offered community work and happiness research has been very important there because there's been a big uh, opposition to this from some trade unions and others um, on the ground that you know you're forcing people to do things and that they're making them unhappy and they, they ought to be entitled to, their, to live off their, uh, their, their, their benefits, or even, God forbid, a basic universal income. Um, what has turned out is that people are much happier when they're forced to take community work 
than when they're allowed just to go on drawing benefit. Because it's the same principle we're talking about all the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. engagement with society is what makes people alive. Engagement, welcoming. Yeah. Um, right, one last question. From the... Okay, go on, go for it. Standing up. Uh, well, Very you, uh, you, we can't, you can't see each other around the lectern. Mine's, um, it's a question of self-interest, really. Um, you talk about employment being very high on the, on the um, reasons for happiness. What about people who are um, not employed because of age, older people? And uh, I'm not suggesting we should, ha we should employ people forever, but people who are not in paid employment need honest endeavour of some form. So I wanted to make a pitch for your budget for something for older people to give them honest endeavour that keeps them having hope and, and uh, contribution to society. And you've not really talked about that, and that must be a fair old chunk of society. Um, the old. Yeah, being old, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, ob obviously, <laughs> we should, we should get, get away altogether from the idea that you have to stop work at a certain age. But, but if, you, if you do... Um, decide to stop work. Uh, I think volunteering is a hugely important uh, aspect of society. It's hugely important for the volunteer uh, and it's hugely important for the people who can benefit. But, uh, as I think you were suggesting, volunteering can, can not normally require some public money to help organise the, the system of volunteering. And uh, that is one of the tragedies of uh, austerity, that, that, that this is the, the area which has been c cut so much um, by people who claim to believe in the big society. I mean, this is just a complete misuse of priorities. All right. It's uh, the, 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 the clock strikes, strikes 1,400, mm -hmm. and uh, we have to wrap it up. Um, so thank you all very much. Thank you all very much for your great questions. Yes. Um, Richard's going to be outside signing um, his book. It's a great pleasure to read. Um, it's got lots of cartoons, and, lo lo and you can really comfort yourself that you're reading it very quickly, because there's lots of graphics you can turn the page over very quickly. So um, I'd fully recommend it. Uh, and certainly get on the Action for Happiness website and do that questionnaire. Um, as for the RSA, um, do sign up. It's a great, great organization. Um, keep up with its efforts to make us all happy. Um, I'm told that you that the cafe to visit is Ralph Mel's upstairs. So um, um, uh, you go 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 up there, and you'll doubtless be kind of um, set upon by RSA representatives telling you to join up. Downstairs. It's downstairs. It says upstairs here. Anyway, uh, uh, um, <laughs> the briefing note wasn't that great. Anyway, the room was fabulous, and I don't ever ever other respect. Let's go a round of applause to Richard. Thank you all very much for coming. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.